0: New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Doug Fudge. Dr. Fudge is an associate professor in the Schmidt College of Science and Technology at Chapman University, where he heads the Comparative Biomaterials Lab. He's here today to talk to us about his paper published in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society that is currently available as early release. He and his co-authors describe four new species of hagfishes from the Galapagos Islands and discuss all of the hagfish species found in the Galapagos archipelago. Welcome, Doug. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. What exactly are hagfishes? This is a podcast where I try to keep it for kind of the the uh, non-scientists are happy to listen to it, but I like to keep it for a non-scientific group as well, and not everybody's going to know exactly what a hagfish is.
1: Yeah, exactly. And most people have never met a hagfish in person because they are, they tend to be a deep uh, group of marine animals. Um, Most hagfish species occur below a depth of 100 meters, some of them a lot deeper than that. And that's why hagfishes are are fairly unfamiliar to most people. So again, these are are marine animals. Uh, They're eel-like in shape. Um, They're not related to eels, Um, and we can talk about sort of where they came from evolutionarily, if you want, in a a minute. Um, They're found around the world. They're fairly diverse. There's about 87 species uh, of hagfishes. Probably the thing that they're best known for is,
0: is an ability to make huge amounts of defensive slime when they're attacked. And some people may recognize these if you ever watched a series like Blue Planet. They showed up in a couple of different places. There's one where they're eating a whale carcass off the coast of Southern California. Can you tell us a little bit about their size and what color they are, generally speaking? Because you have a specific one that's a little different on the color. But you just generally, how big are these things?
1: Yeah, so they they vary quite a bit in size. So and the largest uh, hagfishes... Can be you know when they're adults they can be up to a couple meters long and sort of you know
0: grapefruit diameter and cross section. Um, so so a couple meters up to in in American terms six feet or more.
1: Yeah, and I suspect that there's actually more large ones out there than we we realize. Um, the ones the really big ones that were caught were caught with some really large traps. Um, that were not built for hagfish. They were built for trapping uh, deep-sea fish. And the traps that we normally target hagfish with, um, those big ones just simply would not fit through the,
0: the entrance way. So tell us about the trap you used to find it. I mean, how do you find a hagfish if you want to do it for scientific collection? You, you can't always just sink a whale to the bottom of the dead whale carcass to the bottom of the ocean and go watch it. So how do you find them? So, fortunately, um, fishing for hagfish is, is a fairly easy
1: business. Um, I worked on uh, bluefin tuna for my master's, and catching a bluefin tuna is is a fairly sophisticated endeavor, as you can imagine. Um, catching hagfish is way easier. So, they're scavengers, um, so they have an, an amazing sense of smell, and... Uh, basically, all you need to do is put something smelly in a trap, and if hagfishes are in the vicinity, they will come and they will enter the trap. Um, so and what kind of smells are the, to wh- to which kinds of smells are they attracted? This is um, not that well understood. So I sort of go back and forth between, you know, the more rotten the better and the fresher the better. Um, and. The reason for that is probably... It's the, a pretty opposite. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> and the reason for that is that one of the best hagfishing expeditions I was ever on was uh, at a place called the Shoals Marine Lab where I, where I first met hagfish. And a whale had uh, washed ashore on the main coast and, and the Shoals Lab got a hold of it um, for educational purposes. And so we had some minke whale uh, meat In the freezer and and we use that for bait and we we caught an amazing amount of hagfish that day and you know whether that you know that's an an n of one experiment but it seems like you know rotten marine mammal at least there in the North Atlantic uh, is very attractive to hagfish
0: but what did you use for bait down in the Galapagos then
1: so we uh, we used mostly tuna
0: so there's a, a really nice Fish market
1: um, on Santa Cruz Island, and we would just go there and and load up a couple days before we would head out. You know, we would all we also kind of scavenged at the the restaurants and asked them for their scraps. Um, Hagfish are not (laughs) are not picky, so uh,
0: do you have any extra fish heads that we could use? Exactly, exactly. Excellent, yeah. And and they're normally a dark color, right? Aren't they normally kind of like an inky black looking thing, generally speaking? Well, they vary quite a
1: bit, actually. You know, there's a species in New Zealand called the blue band hagfish, which has a blue band down each side of its body. There's uh, several species that are quite red. Um, these are from uh, we think is the oldest genus Rubicundus. And, yeah, they're kind of startlingly orangish red. It's um, the Rubicundus name, it, I'm assuming. Exactly, that... exactly, yeah. There's... Uh, a really cool Japanese hagfish, um, Oconocinus, Epitritus Oconocinus, which is also called the purple hagfish, which is quite strikingly purple. But you're right. Most of them are kind of drab and gray and uh, sort of, I would
0: say, purplish gray is the most common color. And and we'll come back to that other weird color variant you were to to which I have alluded and which you guys describe. We'll come back to that momentarily. I want to get just a couple more details here. How common are these? Now, you mentioned they're at depth, and I'm assuming that your typical fisherman is not going to be pulling one of these in. And so how deep are they, and how common are they?
1: So as I alluded to earlier, um, they tend to be fairly deep, so 100 meters or more. It's, It's pretty rare to find a hagfish shallower than 100 meters. Um, that's not to say that there aren't species that do occur in shallower waters. And we think that's probably a temperature thing. Um, For a long time, hagfish distribution was described as uh, anti-tropical. So we we find lots of them in temperate zones uh, and even approaching the, the polar regions. And there didn't seem to be many in the tropics. And we now know that is not true, that there's just as many, if not more, in the tropics. You just have to go deeper to find them. Um, so that, to me, tells me that it's it's more of a temperature thing than you know where you are in latitude.
0: And what kind of temperatures are we talking about? You were finding them at in the uh, Galapagos. What kind of depth and what kind of temperature?
1: This was a kind of ragtag operation. Um, we did not have sophisticated oceanographic equipment with us. Um, okay. So I can tell you, you know, the deep ones that we caught at, you know, 850 meters, it's it's probably pretty darn cold down there. Um, you know, I would say probably five degrees Celsius, but I don't know because we didn't actually measure it. Next time we go back, we're bringing
0: uh, a lot more oceanographic equipment with us. So that's probably what, about 42 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere in that, that five degrees Celsius range? Yeah,
1: it's, it's pretty chilly, right? It's um, you know, the coldest water, sorry the densest water in the ocean is four degrees and that's ends up on the bottom because it's the densest. So yeah. that's a common temperature down there.
0: We, we've alluded to this already, but what do these things do? What do hagfishes do ecologically? Mm. So the, yeah, I'm f- fascinated
1: by their ecology. So they, as I said, they're they're scavengers and they're amazing their job of scavenging. So, as I said, if you put something smelly on the bottom, if hagfishes are in the vicinity, within minutes they will be there. And I think that's one of the things that, that really makes them such a successful group, is that they just get there earlier than other species. People have been doing these experiments for a long time. You put bait on the bottom with a camera and a light, and you see who shows up. And it's often hagfishes that show up first. Larger predators sometimes show up later, and that's where this slime defense becomes interesting and important for hagfish because
0: it, it allows them to defend themselves from these larger predators that are brought in. Let's talk a little bit about this slime that these things put off. They're fam- you are right. They, I, I'm a, an arachnologist. I do terrestrial ecology. I'm tr- traditionally trained as a, actually, as a plant ecologist of all things. And even I know about hagfish slime. That's pretty famous stuff. Tell us a little bit about it and how they're using okay. it for a defense. Um, if
1: you don't mind, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the feeding ecology because I kind of I kind of glossed over that a little sure. bit. So they're best known as scavengers, and and they're certainly very good at it. And most of them probably rely almost entirely on scavenging. But from the the gut content data that we have, it, it, it's apparent that they're also opportunistically going after you know soft-bodied invertebrates that are in the in the sediment. Um, there's even a a well-documented case in New Zealand of a hagfish that uh, was actively shown to be preying on a burrowing uh, species of teleost fish. So, you know, predation is not foreign to hagfish, but, you know, if you had to use one word to describe their their feeding ecology, it would be scavenger.
0: Okay, and then so let's get back to the slime then. So what are they doing with their slime? So the slime, you know, in the early days... It was obvious
1: that they were kind of, you know, well-endowed in the in the slime department. Um, this has been commented on by uh, biologists for many, many years, going back to Linnaeus.
0: Yeah, I, re- I recall a story where somebody talked about they were able to get buckets of slime from one single animal. Uh, does that ring a bell with you two? I, I have a vague memory of some famous... Biologist, or or captain, or something like that, commenting like they, they caught one of these things and and just were just wiping the the slime off of it by the buckets.
1: Yeah, so that's that's what I did my PhD on was uh, hagfish slime, and one of the measurements I made was you know how much can an average hagfish make, and the estimate that I came up with was around twenty five liters for a hundred. And this is for Holy 150 cow. gram <laughs> hagfish. So, you know, a hagfish this long, <laughs> it weighs 150 grams. That's like 150 mils of hagfish about, and it can make 25 liters, 25 kilos
0: of uh, slime. Sure. <laughs> so so it's like seven or eight gallons of of slime being made there. Yeah, by, by something that's let's what would you say 150 centimeters? 150 you say? Grams, so yeah. 150 grams. Oh, so you're talking something maybe you know 20 centimeters yeah, long, about less a than foot a foot long, maybe a little longer. Yeah, no,
1: it's quite astounding, <laughs> and that's one of the things that we've been working on for many years is trying to understand. You know, obviously, they're not. You know, most of it has to be water. Right? You can, you're not going to f- produce more sure. slime than your body weighs. Um, and that's one of the mysteries we're trying to unravel in my lab is, is how do they make such a large volume and how do they do it so quickly? Right, So they do this in a fraction of a second. So they get bitten by a shark. Yeah, They produce the slime and then the shark starts to sort of gag and the, it gets on its gills and it aborts the attack, which gives the
0: hagfish uh, an opportunity to escape. So it, it's basically a defensive mechanism these things are putting off. Are there noxious chemicals? Has anybody done the chemical composition um, of this? Or is it just the consistency of it that's really messing up with the uh, the? the yeah, so my,
1: my background is in biomechanics, so I have a kind of mechanocentric view of hagfish slime um, and I recognize that bias. But um, there, nobody has really ruled out Nasty, distasteful chemicals, but what we have shown is that the sort of mechanical experience of, of getting liters of slime on your gills for a, a fish is um, is quite horrifying, and
0: it, it's very effective. And so this is probably fairly tacky stuff, right? It's kind of it's not just like Jello. This is actually something that's got a little bit of stickiness to it, even in the the aquatic environment, right? Yeah. So.
1: It's a hard, it's really hard to describe it over the radio. Um, that it, uh, <laughs> what makes hagfish slime really weird. You know, most people when they think of slime, they think of you know maybe an eel or a fish that is stressed out and it's got a thick layer of slime on its body, um, or even an, inver- an invertebrate that is kind of slimy. Hagfish slime is uh, quite different in that one; it's ejected out of specialized slime glands. So they don't necessarily create a ball of slime and then hide within it. They are sort of ejecting it away from their body, presumably into the mouth of the thing that's trying to eat them. And it has fibers in it, so and that's what makes people really kind of surprised when they interact with it physically, um, because these these fibers are they're silk-like in their material properties, and that's one of the things that I, I really worked a lot on during my Ph.D. research. I was actually in a spider lab, a spider silk lab, um, and my supervisor was quite shocked when he saw the, the stress strain curves I was generating for these fibers because they, they were quite a bit like uh, spider silk in their material properties. So there's a mucus component, which is why we call it slime, and what makes it sort of slippery. But then there's these fibers that are about a micron in diameter. They're about 20 centimeters long. There's about 25,000 of those in a liter of slime. And wow. somehow this thing you know, deploys from a tiny volume coming out of the glands and then makes usually about a liter in a typical sliming event. Um, again, in a fraction of a second, and these fibers give the slime a real kind of mechanical coherence that is, is really surprising. When you you know lift it out of a bucket, it can basically support its weight. Um, so it's not like Jello because Jello um, actually binds the water, you know, and, yeah. and hagfish slime is weird in that it it can trap water momentarily, but um, not permanently. It's not binding the water. It's sort of just trapping it in
0: very tiny channels. So it's almost like the silk is working like rebar in concrete, where it's helping to hold that, that slime into place and create a, a, a matrix in which it can, it can hang on to. Is that kind of a um, nice way to put that? Is that an okay a way little, to put that? I mean, in some ways that's right. Um, but the, the
1: fibers only uh, are effective at bearing stress in tension, so in rebar, you've got you know these stiff rods that can bear compression and, and resist sure. bending um, and tension. In the case of the fibers, it's only tension. So what that means is that um, if you pick up a liter of for slime in your hands, it feels like a bag of water, but there's just no bag. Um, and it's the fibers that... Interesting. So it can mold to any shape that you put it into, any container you put it into, it will... Just like water, it will kind of adapt to that. But if you try to load it in tension, it will um, it will hang together and, and resist that.
0: Interesting. So you could probably start your own little hagfish farm and sell this stuff to children as their own little slime ball to play with, right? It would be one of those interesting toys like, oh, look, this is nature made. Yeah, I mean it's – we're. <laughs> <laughs> we're not <laughs> you're just looking at me like is he really no, people asking me, have me that? I me asked that before.
1: And <laughs> uh, yeah. oh yeah. Really... I mean, <laughs> we there's the properties that I just you know took pains to describe to you um are very interesting and unique and and, and there's no Indeed, yes, very in material science. There's no other man-made material that does those things. Um so there's lots of interest from industry, from the military, uh, in mimicking the properties of, of hagfish slime. Now, you know, I, am not interested in being in the hagfish ranching business or farming business.
0: (laughs) I I don't think many people are. And we also, we don't
1: know (laughs) about its biodegradability. We're actually studying that right now. But, um, you know, if you gave this to a kid, it, it, it would be a fairly temporary, (laughs) uh, phenomenon.
0: The next question I wanted to ask you about then is, uh, how did you decide that these were new species? So you went out, you did your trapping in the Galapagos. You were, you were around a couple of the different islands there. Uh, you put out your traps, and you you were able to get specimens back up to your boat. Then what was the process for deciding mm. that these
1: were new species? That's a great question because, uh, so we had two, um, the, what I think are the, the top two hagfish taxonomists with us on the trip. Um and that just that was just sort of serendipity. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, the reason we decided on Galapagos was uh, we were, were doing a project trying to understand how hagfishes make slime. And we got NSF funding to look at as many species of hagfish as we could and to do some genetic comparisons, uh, looking at the genes that are expressed in the slime glands. And so, as we were kind of surveying the world hagfish diversity, the, the, Galapagos jumped out at us because there's four species there in a, in a quite small area. And then, when we read the, those papers more carefully, we realized that, you know, there was a small amount of collecting effort resulted in four species. Um, I think it was five traps or something that ended up catching the four species that they described so um that's those are pretty good odds uh so i contacted um john mccosker who's at cal academy in san francisco and he was the the pi on the expeditions um that led to the description of those first four species and he was the original plan was for him to come with us on on our first trip and he had to back out not the last minute, but he had to back out for other reasons, and he recommended someone named Michael Mincarone, who's a, a Brazilian uh, deep-sea ichthyologist and hagfish expert. And so I had never met Michael, um, but he ended up meeting us there, uh, and he was instrumental in, in looking at these hagfish that we were pulling up off the bottom and saying, you know, this is a new species. I should also mention uh, Bo Fernholm, who's a Swedish taxonomist, uh, also a a sort of giant in the hagfish field. I read his papers as a PhD student. Um, And he heard about our trip and asked if he could come. And I said, yes. So uh, we had had two amazing (laughs) hagfish taxonomists with us. And those are two of your co-authors as well, right? Exactly, yeah. And Michael ended up, being first author on this paper because he did so much work describing the morphology of these new species. And, and as you know, you know, the hard part of that is describing it in relation to the species that already exist.
0: Right. Um, and that's why, the, you know, the paper is quite long. It's very well detailed. It's very well written. Yeah, it, it's I, I enjoyed actually reading through that. I've never read a, a taxonomy paper on hagfish before because I don't think there are huge numbers of them with such a small number of species. Yeah. But it was actually very interesting to read.
1: So I'll, I'll just add another thing to that. So it wasn't obvious, actually. You know, just because we had the top hagfish taxonomist with us, it actually wasn't immediately obvious for some of the species that they were new species or that they weren't the same or different from ones that we had caught earlier in the expedition at different islands. So I'll give you a quick example of that. So we ended up catching six species there, two of which had already been described, and then four ended up being new species. So the second and third species that we caught were um, two species from the genus Mixini, and those we knew immediately were new species because there had never been a Mixini described in the Galapagos. um, Sure and anything that was nearby didn't look anything like them. But then uh, we went to the western side of the archipelago and we caught another species of, of Mixini. And at first it just looked like it was one of the original Mixinis that we caught earlier in the expedition. And it wasn't until later that we, uh, you know, Michael and, and Bo did their very careful anatomical work that we realized that this was actually a completely different species of maxini. So we ended up with three new species of maxini and then one uh,
0: new species from the genus Eptatretus. And one specific of these was quite interesting. You had several pictures of it on your Twitter feed and it's it's brought up inside of here you call it the ghost hagfish. Tell us a little bit about that. How does it get the name ghost hagfish? Okay, so this was um, this was kind of an amazing
1: moment when this you know, trap came up, and we emptied it into a bucket, and there were a bunch of brown hagfish that were clearly from the the genus Mixini. Um They looked quite a bit like uh, the Atlantic hagfish that we've been catching for a long time, but a couple individuals were white, and you know that was obviously really interesting. and And they were quite small, so you know the first things that went through our mind was well maybe these things are white when they're juveniles and then they they gain pigment later or and then you know then we had some small ones of the brown ones so that kind of limited that that idea and then we thought oh well maybe these white ones are just you know they're albinos there's, there's a genetic mutation and there's it's just a, a strange uh individual and
0: they live so deep who cares
1: what color they are exactly right? and we can talk more about that later but um in fact, I think there was only one white one in the original trap set. And so we really didn't know if it was an albino or if it was a different species. Now, of course, Mike was already in there doing his um, his careful taxonomy, and I think he probably realized before we did that it was a different species. But we, we set another trap, and in the next trap, I think there were 61 white <laughs> hagfish and oh, then wow. a handful of the brown ones. So I was like, okay, this is not just a weird... Genetic mutation, this is, uh, you know, this is a different species, a completely different coloration or lack thereof. And this is Mixini phantasma, right? Mixini phantasma, which is, yeah, that's means the ghost hagfish.
0: Of course, you as you just said, you said three other species were named. How did you pick the names for those? They look, seem to be named after individuals? They are. So So I uh is named after
1: my PhD supervisor, John Gosline, and he was... Uh, a zoologist at the University of British Columbia, um, just an amazing scientist, uh, and I just wanted to honor him by naming one after him. And he, he's the one who got me, you know, that's where I started my work on hagfish and, uh, and slime. And he basically trained me as a, you know, someone who does biomechanics. So that's Goslinei, and, and he passed away in 2016, so I, I thought this was a, would be a good way to honor his legacy. Mixini Martinii is uh, named after someone named Frederick or Rick Martini. He is a a biologist who's worked on hagfish for many years, Um, and he was the one who introduced me to hagfish when I was uh, an undergrad and was out at the Shoals Marine Lab, and that's where I first got my introduction to hagfish. And so I wanted to honor Rick's contributions to to hagfish over many decades uh, with that name. And then the third one, uh, Mixini Gregei, is named after John Gregg, who uh, is someone who's uh, been supporting my research for several years now. Um, He's super interested in in hagfish and hagfish slime, um, but he's also just been a really strong supporter of marine biology research. He also, runs the Western Flyer Foundation, which is this really cool foundation that is restoring uh, the boat that um, Doc Ricketts and John Steinbeck took down into the Sea of Cortez uh, that led to the book The Log from the Sea of Cortez. So John actually was with us uh, when we caught the species that was named after him, Maxini Grego.
0: Oh, very nice, then. Now, why why should people know about hagfishes? We we've talked about their ecological role, we've talked about some of the biomaterials we get from them. Let's talk about some of the applications of those briefly. Sure, um, you know, even if there
1: were no applications, I think people should know about hagfish. They're you know they're quite abundant. You know, as I said, you put something dead down in the bottom of the ocean in most places in the world, and hagfishes will will be there. So I think they're rather important to uh, you know benthic ecosystems in the world's oceans. Um, so I think that's a good reason to know about them. I think they're just fascinating, not just because of the slime, but biomechanically they're, they're super interesting. They tie themselves in knots. They have this really weird uh, loose skin, which we've done some work on, which we've demonstrated seems to be a strategy for surviving that first bite by predators, which if you think about it, if your your strategy is to repel a shark with slime after being bitten by it, uh, you need to be able to survive that first bite. And so they've got this really weird loose-fitting skin that we think allows them to do that. They also tie their bodies in knots um, for various reasons, both during feeding to gain leverage on what they're feeding on, uh, but also to extricate themselves. From their slime, if necessary. Uh, so they're just, you know, they're behaviorally really interesting. Uh, ecologically, I think they're they're super interesting. In terms of applications, I mentioned the silk-like fibers earlier. Um, you've probably heard of research on spider silk, uh, which
0: really got going a little bit, yeah, yeah. Which got going, yeah. I'm sure you have. Virt- virtually every meeting I go to, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> And and a lot of most people most people have not. but You just happen to be talking to somebody who would actually have heard about yeah. that. Yeah, um, I, I think you know most of the public
1: has, you know, gotten excited at some point over the last couple decades about True. artificial spider silk for one reason or another. And so you know the fact that hagfish make fibers uh, that rival the material properties of, of spider silks is is kind of awesome especially when you consider the fact that they're doing it within a single cell. So I didn't mention this earlier, but each of those fibers I mentioned is produced within a crazy cell called a gland thread cell, which they're just enormous as cells go. They're 150 microns long. Um, And they build this uh, very intricately coiled structure. We call it a skein because it looks like a skein of wool. And these things are ejected out of the glands and then they unravel in that fraction of a second that it takes the slime to deploy. So how a cell builds a spider silk that's 20 centimeters long in its cytoplasm is something that we're actively uh, trying to figure out. But there's lots of people who are interested in you know, using these, these fibers as a model for maybe making eco-friendly protein-based uh, materials that could maybe sure. someday replace things like nylon, which are kind of nasty. They don't break down. Um, they take petrochemicals
0: to make them. Yeah, they're they're on par with the plastics that we litter with which we litter our planet too exactly. much. Exactly. Exactly. Doug, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Your your time is precious. I understand you have a lot going on, and I take great pride in having so many great scientists come on and take a little bit of time to Help spread the joy of new species and how the biodiversity of our planet is still being discovered in the strangest of places, including in the deep waters off of an archipelago. It's just a, a fantastic opportunity. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate well, it. Well, thanks
1: for the invitation. I'm, I'm super excited about these new species. So it was really fun to tell people about them.
0: Once again, Dr. Doug Fudge's paper is available as early access on the website Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, and the title of the paper is Review of the Hagfishes from the Galapagos Islands with Descriptions of Four New Species and Their Phylogenetic Relationships. See the episode details for a link to his paper. To learn more about Dr. Fudge, find him on Twitter, at Douglas Fudge, or at his website, sites.chapman.edu forward slash fudge. be sure to follow new species on twitter at podcast species and like the podcast on facebook that's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast and if you'd like to support this podcast go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast